sometimes you just fall into the trap where business continuity becomes data management. But if that's all you're showing that you do, again, are you solving your manager's pain points? Are you showing value? Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. Before we get started, a quick reminder to join the Failover Plan Podcast LinkedIn page this week. That's where you get to find out all the latest information, including news about what we're doing to get you access to great stories about our industry and the professional practices within business continuity. This week, I'm challenging listeners to post a comment or send us a message about the content they'd like to see on the show, or send us a name of a colleague that you think deserves to be highlighted. We hope you're having a great week, and we're always glad to have you join us as we talk to some really great people. All right, let's get on with the show. Let me start out by reading a comment I found on LinkedIn by a BC planner responding to our next guest's recent article entitled, Is Our Profession at a Crossroads? Here's what he said about his experience during COVID. My head has been spinning since I was laid off in March. And what's worse is at the time I got sacked, I was not only their BCM, but also their deputy incident commander, their exercise planner, their crisis manager, and their security manager. When I got noticed, my mind was blown to be honest, it still is. I felt like my business continuity certification and all my work meant absolutely nothing. This commenter goes on to say, it seems like most employers are hiring IT professionals and then giving them BC duties as an afterthought. I'm concerned employers don't understand how to quantify the value of prevention and therefore put it on the back burner. That's hard to hear. Now there are a lot of things about COVID-19 that we weren't expecting. We weren't expecting it to happen so suddenly or that the ramifications of locking everything down on the workforce would be so tremendous. And I definitely wasn't expecting to read testimonials about BC professionals who were laid off at the very beginning of the pandemic. Now, James Green is the Director of Risk Advisory Services for SAI Global, which offers risk management services to many clients. And recently, James was featured for an article in the Disaster Recovery Journal where he asked a similar question to ones many in our profession were starting to ask. Why was the role of business continuity seemed so non-vital that it was included in layoffs? And that's why I felt it was so important for us to talk with James about the article today on the show. James Green, thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, James, tell us a little bit about you and, uh, you know, the, the organization you work for. Yeah, sure. So professionally, I am the director of risk advisory services for SAI Global. We are a global vendor of risk ethics and compliance training, software and consulting. Um, personally, I am based in Tampa, Florida. Uh, my wife and I now have two kids in high school during a pandemic, which is fantastic. I highly, <laughs> highly recommend having two teenagers locked in the house for months on end during a pandemic. Right? Isn't so, it amazing? Isn't it amazing? It's been quite a year, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I have a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old, <clears throat> and it is crazy because I'm like, I'm learning technology and i'm like i thought i i thought i knew stuff <laughs> but i don't <laughs> apparently but that's interesting so uh you know how did you get into consulting i know most of us are not just born and start 
you know, working to our way towards a consulting career, but how did you enter that? <laughs> yeah. So I like to say uh, that I didn't join the dark side of consulting until three years ago. So I was uh, a business continuity practitioner for about 10 years. And, you know, probably one of the things that we're going to talk about here later on is being a business continuity practitioner based in Florida, you are relevant five days a year. So it's like there is a storm, there's a hurricane a thousand miles away. They dust you and the plans off. They pull you out of the box and they're like, James, now make us magically resilient. And you scramble like mad and you have resources and time and attention. And then the storm misses or hits and then they put you back in the box. Uh, and I kind of struggled with, I'm very passionate, uh, Shane, as you know about our industry. And I wanted to be more involved all the time. So um, my my good friend, Terry Lee, recruited me at the time to a company called Strategic BCP, which is now owned by SAI Global uh, as a consultant. Uh, I want to apologize to my clients early on because I was probably terrible at it, <laughs> right? I had no yeah. idea what I, I was know. doing, but I, I really just always focused the, the person on the other side of the table where are your pain points? How can I help you? And I have loved the last three years uh, doing meaningful work 24-7 all over the world. So that's been very uh, satisfying. Right. Well, well, obviously it's paying off. I mean, you recently won, uh, I believe, a, a prestigious award of some sorts uh, from BCI. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I did. Uh, in April, I was announced as um, BCI's 2020 Resilience and Continuity Consultant of the Year. Uh, I also won that award in 2019. I'm looking at them uh, both on my desk right now. I have those two awards, an award from DRI and a Lego set, a Lego set that my kids bought me. So to kind of balance uh, life. But yeah, I've been very uh, fortunate to work with amazing clients and have great coworkers. Because really what I've found over the last two years are individual awards. My name is on those, right? But there was a huge team of people that led to that recognition. So very thankful for um, everyone at SAI and Strategic and the, the amazing clients I get to work with every day. All right. Well, hope here's to a dynasty. Hopefully get a, another one under the belt. But <laughs> we're here to talk to you about specifically an article you wrote called is our profession at a crossroads on disasterrecoveryjournal.com and it was uh very much in line with some of the topics we've talked about on the episodes recently and yeah. it received a lot of interest uh just i could see uh, i'm sure you can say the same but you know tell us a little bit about the article in general what, what was the focus there and, and why did you write it so, um, yeah, the article certainly blew up. It had 2,500 views on LinkedIn in a few hours, which are stats that I'm not really used to on social media. So certainly a huge response. And kind of how the article came about is I've really been struggling since May watching so many of our, our colleagues get laid off. Right. And it just, I didn't understand this is the biggest business continuity event most of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. For many organizations, this is the very first time 
They've had to enact their business continuity plan, right? Business continuity professionals should be front and center. And I didn't understand why I was seeing so many people, uh, you know, looking for new opportunities, saying today is going to be my last day. Um, and I was really just struggling with that personally. And uh, John Seals, who's a phenomenal, you know, editor in chief at Disaster Recovery Journal, said, "Hey." Uh, I've got some space. Would you like to write something? And I said, yeah, but I want to go in a really different direction. So I gave him a first draft and I let him know like, hey, if this isn't right, you can mothball this. We'll never, we'll yeah. never tell anyone about this again because <laughs> right. I don't know how this is going to be received. And yeah. it's like, he really encouraged me. He's like, no, flesh this out, finish this, let's run it. Um, right. And so I wrote it in, I want to say June, and it was, you know, the, the published digitally in August, the magazine physical comes out in September. And the response has been uh, just completely overwhelming. I've been hearing from people, you know, in, in direct message, people I don't even know from all over the world sharing you know, their stories and their frustrations and how they got sidelined or how, you know, they ended up um, being made redundant or losing their, their, their job. So it's been, you know, it's been really difficult to hear those stories, but I think it validated uh, some of the things that we wrote about and discussed in the article that, you know, hey, as a profession, maybe we really are at a crossroads. All right. So when you say crossroads and, and based on some of the <clears throat> the information you've been getting from people and, 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 and their stories, I mean, is it predominantly that, you know, we have layoffs, right? So, so many companies are experiencing layoffs. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and no companies have, have really been challenged because everybody's facing this uh, dark hole, <laughs> it seems like over the last few months, right, of, of yeah. revenue and stuff. So, you know, is this just a simple matter that, hey, companies have to shed weight sometimes? And, or is it more than that? I think it's more than that. And I certainly respect um, companies that have been traumatically hit revenue wise, right? So if you look at the airlines, you know, April, May, June, their revenue was down 94% for, for the big three in the US. Your company can't survive that like if i told you tomorrow hey shane uh your your income's reduced 94 percent, you're gonna have some problems we all are so those types of layoffs like to make the business survive completely understandable but what i didn't understand is during a crisis or during something that impacts a business why are you laying off why are you letting go people who lead that response so the analogy I would use is if your company got hit by ransomware, right? And you laid off a bunch of your information security team. That would be kind of weird. Like, don't we need them right now to deal with this ransomware situation? So how did we end up where I feel a lot of business continuity people, in my opinion, should have been the last people to cut during a business continuity event? So there's, there's proportional layoffs, right? And then there's obsolescence layoffs where people feel, well, what does James really do here? Why are we carrying him <laughs> on the payroll? 
right right and that right. that's really concerning to me as as a business continuity professional right no absolutely i mean you're 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 very you're spot on in in the fact that it, it is an odd oddity and you know i noticed that uh the open to work uh, emblem on a lot of, of friends and it's surprising yeah. to me. May, it may, maybe it's because we have access to a, a larger network, maybe through just our work in general. Yeah. So we get exposed to a lot of people that we're seeing this um, more than others. I think uh, I saw a poll on LinkedIn where people were asking this very question to see if their colleagues saw this. And it was, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of balanced in terms of people saying, no, I haven't seen any versus people who said, yeah, I have seen them at network. So maybe it's just a matter of a network, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on when this started. Like, did this happen in your opinion early on in the beginning or it just took a while to get here? I think it happened early on and I want to go back. Uh, I was doing some prep for, you know, chatting with you and I listened to the episode with, with you and Michael Herrera. Right. And he said something that I loved. He said, you know, BC professionals who built business continuity into the culture of their business were not sidelined. They showed relevance day in and day out. So we saw, and I'm sure you saw this very early on, um, you kind of have three types of clients, right? You have the clients who were very prepared for this type of incident and just needed some help fine tuning or, or as a sounding board, uh, you had the clients or potential clients who had nothing and were scrambling. Right. And then you had the clients who realized that what they had was not adequate for response. And those are the companies that we saw very early on where instead of, the BC manager or director or head of business continuity calling me, it was their boss or their boss's boss calling me. Like those people were eliminated from those conversations immediately. So I started seeing this, uh, you know, we started talking about this as a supply chain manufacturing issue in Asia in January. And in the US, we started to see companies cut out or sideline some of their BC staff in March when they realized, okay, we need to go to work from home. We have this document, right? You can probably hear me rustling a piece of paper. <laughs> right. We, we can't act on it. So Shane wrote that document and now we're gonna sideline all of it. So um, unfortunately I started to see very early on people get sidelined or isolated, which then I think led to those disproportionate layoffs that we have seen um, April, May, June, July. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting you brought up the idea of the the, the planning document that wasn't used. I mean, I, I think that's a big key because if, if, if one of your foundational tenets of what you do here uh, for an organization is, say, a pandemic plan, and then you yep. get in the midst of the pandemic and what you wrote or what others – you know, put together with you is not as relevant because just the nature of this particular event did not yeah. unfold the way we all typically imagine them to unfold. Yeah. That could certainly tarnish your image as being yeah. a necessity. Right or wrong. It falls on our head. Right. Right. right? I had uh, a client in March where a similar situation, I was working with the BC person and then all of a sudden I was working above that. And, uh, that person's boss said everything went into the trash in March. None of our plans 
were actionable. And as the BC guy, right, the BC person, you take that hit personally, right or wrong. You may have been arguing with management for four years to say, hey, what we have is not sufficient. But when it comes time to an incident, nobody cares. You, you take the blame. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I heard one of my cyber friends joke what is the first response during a data breach? And uh, he said, step one, fire the CISO. <laughs> right? That seems to be every company. Step one, fire the CISO. Doesn't matter right or wrong if the CISO was responsible or capable. We tend to carry that burden. And like you said, if you had built a pandemic response plan that was based on a regional event, right? Or a hyper-localized event. And then for the first time in a hundred years, you have a global event, your boss is going to say, well, Shane, why didn't you have the magic bullet here? Right. So. Yeah. No, that I think that's part of the problem is that we are oftentimes looked to for that solution that just was yeah. not uh, able to be developed or found prior to this event. And and quite often with no budget. So yeah, you know, here's here's a pack of gum and a roll of duct tape. <laughs> Make go, it happen, MacGyver. MacGyver. Yeah, go make a make us resilient. By right, right, right. So now, do you think anything related to this and in the ability to kind of sh shine in these types of events is related to new people, or ex did this happen to to everyone, experienced practitioners as well? Well, the word experienced is challenging for me, experienced how, right? I know people who prior to um, this event had been in BC for 10 years, but had never had to lead their crisis management team, had never had to run an event. And I know people who have been uh, in this field for two years and have had to deal with, you know, wildfires and civil unrest and COVID-19. So their level of experience time-wise may be short, but their incidents, you know, that's where you really, as you know, um, and that's kind of what shaped my whole philosophy and belief around business continuity. I was the, the global head of business continuity for a multinational company called Sykes Enterprises. And when I first came into the industry, you know, I followed, I had beautiful risk assessments, BIAs, plans, documents, run books. You needed a binder, Shane, and I was going to hit you with Got it. Got it. <laughs> and then what happened was we had a site in Cairo during uh, Arab Spring. And the Egyptian government fell. I had to protect people. I had to protect assets. We had high profile clients in Cairo that we had to get out of the country. I didn't have a run book for that. Right. Um, and what me and my team and, and Steve Hendel and a bunch of great guys at Sykes, what we learned in that month may have been the equivalent of 10 years worth of experience. Right. So to go back a long, long winded way to answer your question about when when people say they're an experienced practitioner, I focus more on number of incidents, types of incidents, as opposed to. Length yeah, so your experience level <clears throat> is relative, and it, it, it may not yeah. have been pertinent to this particular type of event, because I don't think many of us have ever experienced something like this. Yeah, please. thankfully, right? Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Please, but, and I've please seen that in, in uh, several companies where, 
a lot of times you see project managers get bumped into business continuity, right? Because they can manage the project of BC, getting your plans, your documents, your steering committee, your governance. Um, and then I saw quite a few project managers fall apart during Hurricane Irma because, you know, trying to tick off the percentage of BIA is complete at Tuesday at three in the afternoon versus leading the executive team at four in the morning while a storm is ripping your building apart are two very different skill sets. And I find it interesting that we often as an industry really focus on the project management background of people and not necessarily can they take that call at three in the morning. Right. You know, one other thing I want to point or ask for your opinion on is, is did you feel like there was any specific types of companies that this was uh, more challenging for the BC professional than others? I mean, we talked about airlines, right? But did you yeah. notice or see <clears throat> other industries that were more hit and the BC professionals were impacted therefore? Well, I think, you know, the obvious are retail and service. Yeah. Right. We're a software company. You're a learning company. You're a technology company. You can work from home. I can't run a national chain of stores from home. It just doesn't work. But what I have really seen the companies that responded the best, um, and especially looking at the companies I work with, the companies that are progressive in thought and leadership were planning for things right? Anything. And they seem to have handled this well. So I have, I have two clients I'm thinking of that started in 2017, 2018, really building business continuity and resilience, not as a project, but as a program. And they were cutting edge and neither one of them was doing it because it was a regulatory requirement. They just knew like, hey, we are future thinking. What are the bumps in the road two to five years from now? And those two companies, both global, <clears throat> have handled this better than any other company I work with. So a lot of it goes back to the culture of the company, right? Are you thinking past this quarter as a company? Because a lot of companies, if they're not, they're not certainly thinking about risk past this quarter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a common fallacy we have in that a regulated industry or a business that falls in those required standards areas, you tend to think that's the safe space. You know, there's, it's always going to be okay for me as long as I, you know, hit the tick boxes. But yeah. you know, I, I think you're 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 needing the culture to also equally be interested in is not just a compliance thing. And and that's what, you know, a couple other guests have said on the show is that if you look at it as just purely a compliance related thing, eventually, you know, you're going to be looked at as just, hey, we can cut that for now. We can replace it with something else, you know? Exactly. An audit ready business continuity program and a truly resilient company are two different things. Yeah. yeah so, absolutely. and a lot of companies have found that out the hard way over the last six months. Right. So, right. So let's, let's look at the crossroads references you made as look, you, you, we now have a decision, a pivot that we can make, or we need to be able to, what are some of the things that, you know, we could do differently in your opinion? Well, yeah. So, you know, in the article, and I'd like to sh bounce some of these off you, Shane, it's about relevance 
And that's true for any, it's not just business continuity, any professional in any organization, are you relevant to your company? And not you as a person, this isn't an indictment on us as people, but is your role, is your job relevant? And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time chewing on this and there were kind of like five, five areas that I came up with. And the first one you already touched on is that check the box. Are you just a compliance function? Are you an audit function? Companies see that as like a necessary evil, right? Yes, we have to be in compliance with internal audit, external audit regulators. Uh, What's the bare minimum we can do? Most companies think to be one step above out of compliance. And it's not an ethics question. It's a return on investment. Right. Well, I want to I want to pass my audits, but if it's a pass fail, you know, like some of the exams you've taken, if you need a 70 or above to pass <laughs> 71, you're not, you're not trying to get a 95. It's right. not worth it. Let's get in the 70s. Right. Um, and then so that's the first thing is a lot of companies. And like you said, especially in regular regulated industries, look at some of your um, customers in financial services, financial institutions. They have very structured, rigid methodologies that's one step above passing, like here's FFIEC and we're coming in right above that. And when you're seen as a compliance or audit function, um, you're seen as a cost center. Right, right. Right, you're not seen as risk management. Right. My wife, uh, she has a common phrase, C's get you degrees. She'll say that. I'm like, come on, seriously, I know what you did in in college. You you did not focus on C's, but that's That's her philosophy. She's like, you got to hit the hit the marks. Right. But but yeah, why would you why would you invest, especially a business? And you said ROI. That's that's absolutely true. They're they're in the business of business. So why would you go above and beyond? So if that's what you're dependent on, that oh, they're dependent on these regulatory standards for me to be here. That's not enough, I think. Yeah, because then you're, you're, like I said, you're viewed as the the a necessary evil. Right. Uh, the second thing I've been struggling with is, you know, looking at does your business continuity program support the mission and values of the organization? We have seen risk functions become more and more isolated from the business and not just risk but i don't know if you saw recently you know the iia redid their three lines of defense because they realized audit is supposed to be independent but has become isolated and you see that a lot with business continuity where you want to be independent so you can report to management about what's really going on but in the extreme we've become isolated and you and I have already talked a few times about ROI and how do you show ROI of your business continuity program? And if you can't come up with metrics, you're going to slide back into that necessary evil category. Position. Right. Position, and, yeah. and I always ask, you know, when I sit down with a BC team the first time, I say, what keeps, you know, who do you guys, what's your team report up to? Is it CIO, CRO, COO, EIEIO, whatever? Do you know what keeps your boss up at night? And most of the time they're like, well, why does that matter? Oh, no, it well, does. <laughs> for 
for career progression, if you don't know what keeps your boss up at night and you're not solving her problems, right? Where are you showing value? Yeah. Because I think we get really stuck into when we sit down with management, we say, here's the percentage of departments that have updated their plan. And Shane's department hasn't done their BIA yet. And James's department just did an RA. They don't care. Like, what does that really mean? Right. How does it translate what? to helping me? Yeah. Because again, uh, I think a lot of us, and I've fallen into this trap, sometimes you just fall into the trap where business continuity becomes data management. Mm. But that's not resilience. If I'm just updating call trees or percentage of tasks complete, that's that's lower level data analysis, right? And we all need to do some of that. But if that's all you're showing that you do, again, are you solving your manager's pain points? Are you showing value? Yeah. Yeah, pretty soon uh, there will be automated <clears throat> capability to handle those tasks if, not, if they're not there already. So we cannot yeah. be that. And that's, that's a lot of reasons why, you know, there's a bunch of software vendors in the space. I work for one. We sell software. Software is meant uh, at a base level, right, to automate some of those tasks to free up your time to do more strategic work. Right. But a lot of mistakes I see companies make is they just become experts in the tool, the software, but and then they become even more isolated from the business. Yeah, I mean, it definitely speaks to um, the fact that we kind of look at things all the same. You know, we just say, hey, we've got to apply the same logic and everybody else has got this tool or this approach. Let's just do it the same way over and over again. Expect that the results are going to be really m meaningful. Exactly. And that was my next point. And I'd love to hear your views on that of the one size fits all. Right. So I started at business continuity for uh, a call center company. So that was the best way to do BC, right? Yeah. And then I went to a financial services company, completely different. And then getting into the consulting space, every company has different needs. And I think we fall into this trap that the methodology that worked at company A works at company B. And that goes back to where you're separated from the company. So I have some clients, the way they do things would make other clients cry. They're like, we can't believe you do what? <laughs> but it works for the business needs, yeah. right? And I think a lot of times we go in with our methodology to your point, and I'd love to hear your take on this. We don't adapt that to the business and to the situation. Right. No, that's that's yeah. a, that's that's really resonated with me, James, just simply because I recently had that experience. I, I was working with a client in the technology space it's a very well-known client and it's based on the west coast but the the culture is night and day different from what i'm used to okay and and it's definitely different from where we oftentimes go in business continuity planning or crisis management planning where we're saying in a crisis we're directive we need to give instructions we need to, to plan out for things and we need to to identify people who are similar in that mindset. But when you go into an organization where the culture is 180 degrees different from that mindset, exactly. you, you can't apply that same logic. So I think it's so important, number one, to be able to understand 
a company's culture and then adapt your methodology. So, you know, just simply saying everybody does a PIA, everybody does a BC plan, everybody does a risk assessment. You can't just get into that tunnel vision and expect that it's going to work for every company. You know, you, you have to be willing to, to see it as a, well, let me analyze this situation and build something that's appropriately scaled and appropriately uh, managed. Exactly. I have a, a large manufacturing client uh, and they said, we don't care about a BIA. We know what our risks are. Right. One of our plants goes down, we're not making money. So we are focused on resilience of that facility. Right. So, okay, why would you force them to do a BIA? It's not necessary. Management has said they already, they don't care. It's not a regulatory issue. Right. Uh, and you see it a lot, like you said, in crisis management. I, I was brought into a company, very collaborative, open culture. Yeah. Uh, they had a former military person running crisis management using the incident command system. So they had an event and he's like, I'm the incident commander. I'm in charge and you will do what I say. And everyone was looking at this guy like, that's not, not how we ran the last yeah. three years. So who are right. you? Um Someone even said to him, we were in a meeting, he said, who died and left you president? So it became a cultural. I won't put that in the AAR, but here I'll share yeah. it with Shane and the world on the failover podcast. Right. So, right. But that's a very, you know, that is, like you said, adapting resilience and risk to the needs of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, look, you know, you, you mentioned something earlier about... Right. Mm you know, you kind of planned or some people planned for a pandemic that was a regional event. Right. And, and you also mentioned there's other types of emergencies. I mean, like, look, it just seems as though we were caught a bit flat footed in a lot of ways. A lot of our planning didn't meet the mold. And again, it's not necessarily a direct translation to why people were maybe losing their roles or, or companies decided to cut VC first, but you know, how, how do we apply this, this logic of, um, scenarios that really make sense and are relevant to our planning? You know, how do you look at that? I think the key for me, so I do a lot of tabletop exercises with C-suites and executive teams. I love doing those. Um, and I'm more focused on getting the team to be cohesive than the scenario. Because there's always a different scenario. And if you're very rigid in your methodology, what happens when there's Hurricane Katrina? What happens when there's COVID-19, right? So I really focus those teams on getting them to work together regardless of the situation because something new will always come up, right? And you can't really predict the future. But if your team works together that's where you see collaboration. That's where you see innovation. And look at what's happened the last five months. If I would have told you in January, the term contactless delivery, (laughs) you would have been like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right. Right. But you saw these restaurants pivot to only 1% of my business was takeout. And now it's 100%. And, you know, the Uber Eats app is going to show when the person drops it off on the door and you wait two minutes before you open the door. Those are 
that's true innovation and that's resilience. Those companies, right, looked at what was going on and were able to work together as a management team and make decisions. And that to me is a lot of what certain aspects of crisis management are. Yeah. There may be a situation that you haven't thought of before. Can you collaborate? Can you prepare? And that's the problem with me when we get into very rigid scenarios. Life never goes according to those scenarios. Yeah, yeah I absolutely right? believe in a uh, objective-driven kind of response. And, you know, we, we, we saw that, like you said, the perfect example is restaurants. Uh, you know, recent episode with uh, Sheba Phillip on, from Ecola. Uh, she talks about how she never had a plan, but she had some objectives as the CEO as to how she needed to pivot the company and really trusted people to put it together. And they yeah. did, you know, they came up with so many different strategies. And, and that kind of calls into question in my mind, the idea of planning and how we've looked at planning. You know, so it's for two reasons. Number one is it, you know, if you, again, apply this rigid methodology to think, hey, we've got to come up with the scenarios and make sure every scenario has a plan and this is exact steps. Yeah. You know, it's there's inevitably going to be a miss. <clears throat> and then secondly, exactly. the plans just look like, you know, you're, 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 you're living and dying by the plans. And so therefore your reputation is centered on how well they are achieved. Exactly. Know? And that's why I'm a big fan of, of collaborative crisis management teams. I'm a big fan of all hazards approach. Can we respond and come together and make decisions about anything, right? The only time I encourage companies to write specific plans for a specific scenario is a Florida-based company, right? As an example, you're going to get a hurricane threat every year. So you should have some more hurricane-based stuff. Or when I was working with companies in uh, the Philippines, Sykes had 15,000 employees there. We got hit by like two, three typhoons a year. So we had some typhoon-specific uh, response, but the rest was just general. Right, because like you said, it it no matter what comes, can we uh, get together? And a lot of what I work with crisis management teams on, getting them to make decisions when they don't have all the information. Yes, because that's no. what happens to a disaster, and they're like, "Well, we want to wait," and I'm like, "No, but in a real disaster, you don't know, you don't have all the information. So, do you have the courage and the ability to make decision?" on partial information and some of it may be erroneous because that's how things play out. And you look at COVID-19, you had certain companies who are like, all right, well, we're just going to plan for two weeks in March and then April will be back. back in business. And now it's September and you're hearing companies say, eh, maybe next spring. Right. <laughs> right. So, well, listen, you need to come back and talk with us uh, about, specifically more about crisis management. I think there's some value there, but I, I think you've, you've, you've touched on some specific points with your article. Uh, and, and it's been a theme. I, I really feel like, man, we cannot ignore this. This is not yes. something that uh, should be just said, Hey, we'll, we'll get better and move on. We, we've really got to evaluate. So James, thank you for, for joining me today and uh, explaining a little bit about what you are seeing in the industry. And I hope we can continue this conversation uh, with the industry on how we can apply some of these tips that you've provided to us. So thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. Mm -hmm.
Thanks again for joining us on the Failover Plan podcast. Don't forget to join our LinkedIn group this week and leave us a comment so we can hear from you about what you want to see on future episodes. Thanks again for listening. And remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way?